0: This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Mark chapter 9, verse 29. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This incident in the life of Jesus, recorded in Mark chapter 9, begins with a situation that we're familiar with. A man has come to the church, the disciples, right, they are the church, And what he wanted God to do in his life, which was heal his uh, demon-possessed son, hasn't happened. So he's disappointed. And he blames the church. I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Evidently, because this was the answer to, what are you arguing about? Some in the crowd, specifically the scribes, jumped on the bandwagon of the man's disappointment. They, must, they probably added their own skepticism about Jesus and accusations. This is a familiar scene, right, in modern times. Disappointment with the church, disappointment with God, and then a chorus of unbelieving naysayers who would love to sort of heap gasoline on that fire and say that Jesus isn't true, that his disciples actually don't live this powerful eternal life that they claim. And just like in Mark chapter 9, in the face of this, The church today often missteps in a way similar to how the disciples here misstepped by arguing. The disciples were arguing with the scribes, arguing, seeking with words to defend their claim. I don't know what words the disciples were using, but today, philosophical arguments about the problem of evil or these academic theological parsings that end up muffling and muting. The great promises Christ attaches to prayer. Some churches in our own day have even altered Christian doctrine and teach that, well, God, the Spirit, doesn't move in power anymore like he did in the Acts of the Apostles, actually changing doctrine to account um, for these difficulties. This is not the way. And Jesus, there's an, uh, a gentle accusation in Jesus' question, what are you arguing about with them? Right? Oh, wrong on two points. One, don't be arguing. It's a repeated refrain through first and second Timothy. Stop arguing over words. And why with them? Why are you arguing with unbelievers? In his in their case the scribes. Opposite to how the disciples acted on this day, um, Paul carries himself in the right way. As he says in First Corinthians, he refused to speak of Christ with quote first Corinthians one, with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Refusing to argue. The problem recorded in Mark 9 was not an intellectual problem that could be argued away. It was a spiritual problem. And Jesus names the two aspects of the spiritual problem. A lack of faith and a lack of prayer. Right? He, he, the opening uh, injunction against the crowd, chiefly in the scribes, um, O oh, faithless generation. And a lack of prayer, as he says at the end, oh, this sort of kind of demon can only be cast away with, with prayer. Well, on whose part um, do these uh, spiritual diagnoses rest, the lack of faith and lack of prayer, at least in part with the father of the boy, who here he is, you know, he's had this sort of disappointment with the disciples, but he's face to face with Jesus himself, the one he says he originally came to see, and he doesn't then ask Jesus to heal his son. He just leads with complaint that the disciples didn't heal his son. Do you see the difference there? As if to lead the man into something more than just complaint, Jesus brings the sort of real object before their eyes. He says, bring the son here. And the son seizes and foams and rolls about. And just a little footnote here, um, not all dramatic diseases are caused by demons, right? We just saw yesterday, last Sunday in the gospel when Jesus healed a man with a very similar symptom set of deafness and muteness, and it was sort of merely medical. Still part of this fallen, broken world, right? But Jesus doesn't cast out a demon to heal that man. He just heals him. Here, it's a sickness that has these sort of medical symptoms, but also was manifestly a spiritual affliction as well. The the scripture tells us a demon was causing it. So the son's affliction is on full display. The father of the boy... um, is therefore, of course, moved out of his fatherly love to do more than just complain. He says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Right? This vague request, just like, have compassion. And it was built on a dim understanding of who Jesus was. Who it is that he's actually talking to. And so Jesus sort of brings out this dim understanding into the light of day by repeating the man's words back to himself with a question. "Right? If you can... I don't know exactly. We don't know what tone of voice. It's so interesting to think. So much actually, meaning can hinge on how we interpret tone of voice in some of these passages. But um, you know, if you can, right? If you can, you like, if you can, right? This is the Son of God Himself being addressed. And so Jesus, but He doesn't. um, he, He He shines light on the problem, but He doesn't then like shame the man away with that. He then draws him closer. He actually invites him to come into more than he's living with presently. If you can, all things are possible for one who has faith, for one who believes. So he's invited to have faith, and with that, the man sort of leaps into faith when it says he cries out. Look at the change of this man's disposition complaining, a sort of vagueness, and then crying out. This is the prayer that was missing originally. Crying out. Prayer means asking, remember? So crying out. Uh, an act of which flows from faith, you'd only cry out to someone with help if you thought they could really help you. I believe. And even though his faith is fledgling and patchy, right? as he says, help my unbelief, it's the faith that then turns the corner of this account for God to operate in power and answer the man's request. Jesus then takes action. The boy is healed of what plagued him. The demon is cast out, and the physical symptoms go away. Earlier, the disciples had attempted to heal the boy in Jesus' name, but the father of the boy, right, the one who's actually sort of bringing the petition, himself didn't have faith until this moment. I'm reminded of an anecdote that has stuck in my mind of um, St. Anthony the Great in the 4th century. He's walking along the road. He's a monk. Um, and this man sort of cries out, kind of sees that he's wearing like, shabby clothes, indicating that he's a monk. And um, the man cries out, Father, Father Anthony, pray for me. Father Anthony says, no, I will not pray for you unless you care to pray for your own soul as well. Right? Sort of listening, no, no, this doesn't work by magic, right? Your faith has to participate. The man himself needed to truly pray if something was to be done. But this is actually not the only lack of prayer in the incident that needed remedying. It's possible that the father could have come with faith and the boy might still not have been healed because the disciples' own prayer seems to have been lacking as well. It, it's implied that they did pray right, and they tried to exorcise the demon as Jesus had given them authority to do. And we see it recorded just a few chapters earlier. Go out and in my name cast out demons. And that's a prayer to cast out demons in Jesus' name but what we see i think here in this passage is that faith and prayer they both admit of degrees that you can say lord i believe and help my unbelief right because faith can grow you can pray and yet you could still not really yet be praying help my unprayer true prayer which it seems like the disciples lacked on this in, in this occasion is characterized by fervency fervency that doesn't just casually ask but cries out like the father does cries out to God for his intervention and action. The, uh, a recurring theme in the scriptures is that God answers fervent prayer. Now here I'm at this very sticky and strange point as a preacher in that ordinarily um, I would always much prefer to preach aspects of the word where I feel like I've made some kind of like beginner progress in that truth, in, in incorporating that truth in the life, this is a particular topic where, um, kind of with embarrassment, I tell you that I want to share with you that I have not made much progress in this area. And so, what I want to describe is something that, sort of, looms before me as something I'm longing to grow more into, but haven't yet. And I'm actually really grateful. I wish Deacon Lincoln isn't here with us this morning because he's with his father-in-law, Claire's father, who is on a ventilator with COVID, most of you probably know, in down in Mobile, um, and has been very close to dying. But it seems like perhaps he might be getting better, but it's very ambiguous and tenuous. Um, but Deacon Lincoln is much more gifted in the intercessory prayer than I am, much more constant and much more fervent. Um, he'd be more equipped to speak out of experience. So what I want to say now, just to conclude the sermon, I tell you sort of of what I hear, the faithful teaching, and what I sense that I lack, uh, rather than what I have. So all that to say, um, the scripture says that fervent prayer um, is ordinarily accompanied with fasting. Many Greek manuscripts of the Bible, if you were looking at this passage in the Bible, you'll see, you'd see a footnote in most modern English translations that says in the footnote, footnote um, many Greek manuscripts, prayer and fasting. Right, because so um, spiritually discerned was the sense that true prayer is characterized with fasting. Whether that's fasting that is just instinctive because you're so focused on the object of what you're asking God for that that fervency is just burned up hunger. Right? A, a fast that isn't a discipline, it's just instinctive. The way no one w- um, wants to eat when they're deeply in grief, for instance. Um, or it could be a fasting that's taken on as a discipline in order to become more fervent. Right? Like, I want to be more fervent, and this is something that I've sort of tried to practice in sort of small ways in in the life of prayer and intercession, is, Lord, I want to pray about this more earnestly, so I'm going to clamp food for this day to try and pray more fervently. In any case, fasting usually accompanies. And fervency has two aspects which I need to be held in tension. Um, Urgency and constancy. And the difference is, urgency is a sort of like... uh, emotionally sort of high expressed crying out, Lord I need, I need this I, I'm asking for this, please give it to me, right but it needs to be met with constancy it's quite easy to feel something strongly once or twice right, it's harder to sort of sustain that vigor through time, constancy in prayer fervency cries out in prayer with urgency but it then keeps on praying with constancy for weeks months or years if necessary One anecdote I am grateful for is that my mom, of blessed memory, uh, prayed for her father's salvation um, for 45 years before he repented, two years before he died, in his early 80s. Took 45 years of prayer. And one of the things that's a constant testimony in the life of holy men and women of the past um, is that true prayer is often accompanied by tears. Literal, physical tears. Tears of longing to see God act. Tears of humility and zeal. Tears uh, that indicate fervency. And one of my sort of laments about my own spiritual life is that I don't have more tears. I I can count on one hand, easily on one hand, the number of times I've sort of cried while praying, asking for something, but with such urgency that tears were manifest. But those few times where I actually prayed fervently, I saw the Lord answer those prayers with um, a clarity and a swiftness, far more than I ordinarily hear with my sort of casual requesting of God. Tears can't be manufactured. What an imposter religion that would be if we're like, oh, tears. (laughs) You know, we can't squeeze a tear out. Um, But an Anglican church father I admire so much, Lancelot Andrews, in his diary entry, he writes, "Lord, give me tears, maybe just one little tear." <laughs> and I, as I was moved as I read that, I just longing for, like, just Lord, give me a little bit of spiritual zeal that would we'll cry out. Tears can be manufactured; they're a gift of God, but they are symptoms of true prayer, as the saints testify to it. And I think that, especially for sort of those deeper. Um, entrenched evils that we face in the world, in our own souls, uh, in those lives of those whom we love and who are near us, I think until we join the father of the boy in crying out in prayer, not just, Lord, Lord, please fix this, but crying out to God to intervene, we shouldn't be surprised if the demon has not yet come out. It's not to say that the operations of God are dependent on our acts. Fundamentally not, right? Of course not. God is God, and He acts as He wills, of His own free, loving will, independent, actually, of our actions. But He's invited us in some mysterious way. Part of what it means to be the body of Christ is He's actually guiding us into a more fervent life of prayer in order so that we can... um, I don't know the right word. Synthesize, catalyze, invite... um, his operations in the world in a way where he gets the glory and we get to participate in his divine life in so doing. Until we join the boy, the father of the boy in crying out, we shouldn't be surprised when the demon is not yet cast out. Amen.